1950s TV. Here we are today. We're up, uh, about 30 years, a little more than a quarter century past the introduction of the commercial browser to the broad world. So that would, in this argument, put us today at 1480 in Gutenberg years. Uh, there's a lot ahead of us. And I think that we still see the internet as a technology story. And ultimately, it is not. It's a human story. Um, so, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by uh, Jeff Jarvis, author of the Gutenberg Parenthesis, which I have right here. And I'll hold it up too. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so, I think probably the best way to start this is, do you want to just like give people an introduction, like 60 seconds, to um, the thesis behind the book? The idea behind this is that we have a lot of lessons to learn from our entry into the age of print as we now leave it for whatever follows, whether that's the age of the connected world or, or the digital world or whatever you'd like to call it. And in that process, uh, the, the idea of the Gutenberg parenthesis is a, is a theory from uh, three academics in Southern Denmark who said that the, the years of Gutenberg, the years of print were an exception in the grand sweep of history. That, that society was, for example, more conversational before it's becoming more conversational again. And so in the book, I lovingly trace the origins and development and spread of print and then try to look at its meaning and then try to apply that to some of the issues that we face now around regaining conversation over the idea of content, about control of speech, about the institutions of society. Mm. So if you had to say, obviously Gutenberg had to overcome a lot of different um, things uh, throughout his yeah, creation of his printing press. What do you think you would say was the biggest thing that he had to overcome in his uh, early workings? What fascinated me so much about Gutenberg, the reason I wanted to do this book was because I saw him as the proto-entrepreneur that he had to, the, the, the making of the printing press was the least of it. There were, there were presses for wine and grapes and binding books. Um, he had to create a mechanism for creating letters, for sculpting, as far as we believe. We don't know exactly how he did it, but but from thence on, sculpting letters onto steel bars, pounding that into a soft metal like copper, making that into a mold. Then he had to do the metallurgy of deciding what metals to use, a lead, tin, and antimony, which makes it fast to make this product. But I, and I think the um, he also had to deal with quality paper, with the ink, and its chemistry. Uh, I, I think the most important thing was that idea of making the letters themselves, of thousands of letters to make the Bible, and um, that uh, Marshall McLuhan called it the first ditto device. It was the beginning of the assembly line. It was the beginning of um, industrialization, you could argue. Um, and on top of all that, he had one more challenge, which was financial, because in a sense, he was, in fact, an entrepreneur because he had to find risk capital. He had to have the space and build the presses and buy the metal and buy the paper long before he got his first income from the book. Uh, so uh, there was a gentleman named um, uh, Foust who uh, banked him, and they ended up in a court fight um, that people think means that Gutenberg died penniless. He didn't. It just dissolved their business 
after the Bible, and they each went their separate ways. And Fus' own business with his son-in-law, Peter Schoffer, lasted for more than 100 years, which is quite amazing for the second printing business ever created. Yeah, actually, one of the things that really struck me was the the sort of the the initial speed of spread of the the idea of the of the of the actual like mechanical printed press itself um contrasted to then how long it actually took for things to become i don't know updated revolutionized it was that it's like that you had the initial creation in uh i guess 1464 1454 about the bible came off the press um and then it's right up until about I think it's like the the eighteen hundreds before things really really um, started to kick into gear in terms of uh, like production line and and steam powered presses and does that suggest to you that although the internet may exist on a a time scale that is perhaps a bit compressed due to the rate of like innovation and stuff that ha- happens these days with you know so much connectivity and just so many more minds working on problems together do you see us still being before some really huge changes that come as a result of the internet as if we're still sort of we're really getting to to grasp still with what exactly it is my Biggest point and most arguable is that the lesson might be that we have time, that we're at the early stages of the process. Let me let me give you a quick timeline here. 1454, about the Bible comes off the press. 1500, up until then, that's the incunabular or infant phase of books. And books don't change a great deal from the scribe's model. But starting about 1500, they gain uh, characteristics we now know, like titles, title pages, uh, page numbers, paragraph indentation. By then, by the way, the business was in shambles because too much capital uh, went into this new technology. Uh, the market was saturated. Then along comes Martin Luther in 1517 with his theses. That revolutionized the business. Fast forward now to 1600, thereabouts, um, a century and a half after, after Gutenberg's Bible, and we see an amazing rush of innovation with print. The invention of the modern novel with Cervantes, the invention of the essay with Montaigne, uh, a market for printed plays with Shakespeare and the invention of the newspaper. And I think it took that long for the technology to recede and for the humanists and the creators to go to the forefront. Another century on 1710, we get copyright. And, and then we start to see creativity and conversation as this freeze-dried thing we think of as content uh, in, a, in a marketplace. Fast forward, as you said, to 1800, we start to see other technologies radically change print. Steam-powered presses, stereotyping, the molding of pages, uh, the linotype, my favorite machine ever on Earth, uh, and other innovations that sped up and scaled printing. And so we have the beginnings of the penny press, the beginnings of mass media. In 1893, uh, I write about my next book, which is also out, called Magazine. Um, We have the invention of the business model with uh, a magazine called Muncie's, sold the magazine at a loss because they'd make it up on advertising, thus was created the attention economy. 1920s, you get the first competitor to print broadcast. 1950s TV, here we are today. We're up about 30 years, a little more than a quarter century past the introduction of the commercial browser to the broad world. So that would, in this argument, put us today at 1480 in Gutenberg years. Uh, there's a lot ahead of us. 
And I think that we still see the internet as a technology story. And ultimately it is not. It's a human story. It's it, it has all of our of our brilliance and all of our foibles and failures uh, in it. And I think we need to see the internet in terms of the humanities and anthropology and ethics and history and design and and um, uh, community studies and so on. So what I tell my students is that we're at the beginning of this, and it's up to them to, in my case, to reinvent journalism because I'm a journalism teacher. But any field we have the opportunity to decide what the internet shall be. Okay, so you've talked about how initially there was there was quite a lot of growth in the amount of stuff being printed and it almost sort of went further than the market needed. There was too many books being printed um, and not enough people to buy them and some printing houses went out of, um, out of business. So it took a while basically for the literacy rates of the entire country to catch up um, or of the, the whole of Europe and the world to catch up to the new technology that had been invented. So do you think there's a language that we are still to grasp with for the internet, like something that we are still learning or haven't even quite got a hold of in terms of how we now communicate as a, a species online? I think it's a fascinating question, Josh. Yeah. Um, let me go back again to Martin Luther. He made a crucial decision, well, two crucial decisions. When he decided to print his theses, they were we don't even know if they were hammered out of the door of the of the cathedral. But when he decided to print them and to print them in German, it was critical. He was aiming, of course, to have dialogue with scholars in Latin, but he printed them in German, knowing that he was going to create a public. Long before Habermas thought publics were created, we had a public. But also, very, very importantly, it started, especially with his Bible, to standardize the German language and the notion of Germanness. Uh, Umberto Eco ha has said that a dialect is a language without an army and navy. Uh, and in that sense, language became the basis of nations. And, and so, yes, language became very, very important. And now go forward to today, just to stay literal on this idea of language, I think we expand language and literacy considerably. We have emoji, we have memes, we speak in video. What are we doing right now? Um, uh, we're not doing this in text. And and so, and you look at what happens on TikTok. I just, I just finished Taylor Lorenz's book uh, about, about social life online, and you really get a sense of a language being created. You're right, a literacy in places like TikTok and Instagram, where the communication becomes fundamentally different. Now, I celebrate this in all kinds of ways. Number one, because I think it recognizes an expansion of literacy. People can be considered literate in more ways. And number two, voices that were always there but not heard in mainstream mass media run by people who look like me, old white men, uh, now have their venues and their places where they can be themselves, not under white gaze. And so they are creating a language and literacy. When you try to understand black Twitter, it's not easy for me as a white guy because it's not made for me. And um, I held a, a, a black Twitter summit at my school in February where one of the original coders from Twitter said, you know, we made this for white guys who were going to South by Southwest. And what was amazing was that the black users of Twitter took on the affordances, made them their own, created a structure for their dialogue and their conversation um, in their own ways. So yes, I think literacy is not just about the technology. Literacy is, it means a cultural liter literacy of how people can now express themselves and converse and negotiate in ways that didn't exist 50 years ago.
Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic. The there's all, there's another great book um by is it Gretchen McCullough? Uh, I don't know where it is. Um I think I can never find my books either. Yeah, um the book is called Because Internet. So it talks about about the the creation of of these different forms of languages in like different like sub sub communities of the internet on on different platforms whether that's like reddit or twitter or 4chan or tiktok now um so she was she was a bit pre-tiktok um while you're all this one more second i had a fascinating discussion the other day um i've been arguing that generative ai might expand literacy that is to say people who are intimidated by writing one can say that montaigne raised the bar for entry into public discourse you had to be a writer you had to write well um and and i and i've speculated that generative ai could be used to help people who are intimidated by writing to tell their own stories, to say what they want to say, to frankly code switch to standard language. And a couple of my students in our executive program at the journalism school said, hold on, um, you're then trying to set language back to the least common denominator of what it was from those who had the power to publish. That's what generative AI spits out. And, and so I hope that we embrace a grand diversity of language that will be coming on the internet. I think what we're seeing on the internet is maybe like an expression of language in a way that we have always had anyway. It's just that in a lot of senses, the way that people talked for a long time was not necessarily reflective of the way that they wrote, um, especially in like terms of like slang and uh, things like that. There's um, one of the best examples is um, a bit obscure, but so I, I used to work in, in Austria and I learned, instead of learning German, I learned their like variation, the dialect variation on, of German where I was working. Um, and they, they like, they texted in the dialect, right? So it wasn't German, but it was like phonetically worked out in the same way that German is. So they, I would look at it and be like, what on earth does that mean? And then if you read it, like just sound it out, then you can work out, it's like, oh, that's that sound in the dialect and that's that word there for because of it. Um, do you think that it, that this the internet is like just simply like giving expression to these things or do you think there's actually like a new language being built in these communities you're going down such great wonderful rabbit holes here i i love this um well, let, me, let me go back start back again one thing i learned that for uh movable type one necessity was to reinsert the space into writing that from about i don't know 200 to 700 uh, a.d um the space disappeared and that seems so illogical. If you look at old scribal manuscripts, they are impossible for our modern eyes. It's just this, the letters themselves are weird and they're all mashed together. And that makes no sense until, I think it's Paul Sanger wrote a book about the space, um, who said that if you're, if you're a child learning to write at the beginning, you don't put spaces in because to you it's all a continuous sound. If you hear a foreign language, especially Schweizerdeutsch or something like that, it's unintelligible so it's just one sound, right? Um, but by reinserting the words, it was scribes in, in Ireland in about 1700 something, 700 something that started putting the space back in, then words became distinct. And then we started to see the beginnings of grammar 
sentences and grammar and punctuation and and a different sense of things. Even the shape of the word was important. We don't read by parsing every letter. We read by looking quickly at the shape of the word and understanding that. It's called the boom of space. So I, I, I think you're very right that when we go to today, if you look at how young people um, use text and elders sometimes roll their eyes at this, oh my God, what's going to happen to the language? Uh, no, there's a tremendous inventiveness that's going on around language. If you look at what happens in China and the need to get around the censors, there's an inventiveness around language. Language is ours. Language is everybody's. And and I think it's really exciting. Um, you know, I was an old copy editor, so I used to be a stickler with a with a pencil up my ass, worried about uh, you know semicolons and that versus which and if versus whether. Um, and and I spent a lot of time learning all that. And it's hard to give it up. It's hard to give up that orthodoxy. But that orthodoxy is kind of an expression of power. So I don't know where the language will go. Um, and language will become, I think, variant again with many more dialects than we had before. Yeah, I'm looking forward to to seeing which way it goes. Because everyone sort of th imagines it'll, there'll be a natural trend towards like a universal global language and we'll we'll lose the, so quite a lot well, i mean we are we have lost a lot of languages as as sort of cultures get wiped out and um i think the assumption is that a lot of like specialized like localized dialects might sort of die out essentially um but maybe maybe the internet will see the rebirth of new and different ones um yeah and also if we can if we can train ai one of its useful tasks might be to learn some of these more obscure languages ah uh, that is a wow i hadn't even thought of that that's a that's a whole nother idea wow okay i mean you can really go crazy and wonder whether because ai can find these patterns it doesn't understand anything um it has no sense of words no sense of meaning no sense of truth or fact but it does find these patterns and decodes them as a result is so i'd love to fantasize what if you could take whale sounds and put it in AI? Would you start to understand the language? Ooh, maybe. <laughs> That's getting a little, a little woo there. But. A little bit woo, yeah. Um, this the, one of the ideas you have in the book is the this idea of the fact that once we had words arranged in a sentence in a line, that the the human thought process became linear. It was a sentence. It was start to finish. That knowledge itself was like bound within the within the book, um, and you know it had a start and a beginning and a, a a pathway through. And I thought a lot about this in probably a very linear way. Um, how do you imagine the train, like a, a train of thought, went? prior to that do you think it had a really genuine impact on the way people thought problems through or or, or like impacted their like day-to-day -day, like critical thinking skills or like how do you think that was different another great question um it, it, credit where it's due is marshall McLuhan who said that come print uh, we cognize the world, we, our, we thought of the world, our, our organizing principle for the world in this sentence as an example became linear. And we valued the story. And, and, and we value, we came to this idea, this notion of content, content which fills a thing, a book with a beginning and end. 
And inside that are stories with a beginning and a definable end and sentences with a beginning and end. Well, the world isn't that way. We don't always speak with, with periods. Um, uh, the, the internet may be a more accurate presentation of the world in that it has no beginning and no end. It scrolls through forever and it links off in all kinds of unexpected ways. Um, and so if that's, if we believe the Gutenberg parenthesis and we are returning to a reality before print, then we might be seeing that in the internet. How people thought before, no way to know. Um, um, you know, I, I was fascinated by things like uh, the vogue in letter writing that came as people became more literate and there was an orthodoxy to how to write letters, but that wasn't how people spoke. That certainly then wasn't how they thought. Uh, I, I do think it must have been different. I've been doing research for, for a coming book on the internet and I came across this idea of fama. I was trying to think of myself, how did people deal with truth and authority before there was print and editors and publishers and librarians and so on? Well, um, there's this idea of fama, F-A-M-A, -A, which means in Latin, it is said. I don't have a classical education, so I take someone's word for that. And um, what it means is it was a social structure for understanding authority. Who spoke it? How Are they full of crap all the time or are, are, are they generally reliable? It attaches to their reputation, to the reputation of the story, to the reputation of the subject and the spreader. And... That's how people figured out it was true. When print came out, print had no authority. It was it was it had no no provenance. Anybody could make this pamphlet. Anybody can make a Facebook post. Same thing, right? It it only got authority imbued in it when we had the institutions of editing and publishing that came along. Those are institutions that are not adequate to the scale of speech today, and that we haven't reinvented yet. So I've got to guess to your question that going back before print. Things were much more if this, then that, conversational, maybe a little bit of this, could be this, could be that, um, more conditional, I guess. Uh, this could be true, but we don't know. That guy got it wrong last time. We'll see what's what. And I think that's, a, again, a truer view of the world than the idea that a newspaper can deliver you the truth or the fact that it's printed in a book means it's reliable. Do you think this means there might be like a, a, a direction back to the world where personal responsibility for like what you were to believe might, might, might lead us. Because I mean, I thought a lot about, about regulation of speech in the internet. Um, so my first book, uh, Brexit, the establishment civil war, go buy it. Um, was, the first, the first half of it was was sort of conceived and, and written about the the amount of like political advertising online that's just unfiltered, essentially. That like nobody, no, we have a lot of rules in most countries about what can be can can and cannot be said in ads on on radio, on TV, on uh, in print, and when it came to online advertising it's just like go for it you know no no regulation whatsoever um and then like past that you know you have to you start getting into okay so what's an ad what is a post an ad it's sort of like if if it's promoting a product does that count as an ad um and then all the way down to um say like what is what is like false advertising if there's such a broad um definition of 
of what constitutes an ad and then all the way to like can the government tell people tell social media companies what to take down you know because the with yeah mad controversy about that at the minute obviously there was um a lot of things um inside twitter that have come out um that we know that there was like pressure from different governments to take to, you know take post down and like I've, I've thought a lot about like how you get around this problem of everyone can say anything online without yeah and and like uh, preserving the freedom of speech while still like finding some way for for uh, like the truth to to rise to the top essentially and for um grifters and hucksters to not be able to just say what they want and have have people believe them but i've never come up with a satisfactory answer because i don't like the idea of a government having that power independent bodies get very squirrely because it's like who appoints them who funds them and it seems to me like we were probably going to head towards this direction of like you should only like don't believe what everything you read but for the internet like do you see do you see that the way being the way things end up going i i think you're you're going in thought was exactly right personal responsibility um descends to us once more we've got to decide about this we don't want official truth, especially if the officials are the ones who brought us Brexit and Trump. Uh, you know, we we just don't want that. Um, I, I despise mass and mass media. I think it was a, a temporary um, blip in, in in history, and it's an insult to the public. And this idea that you can have one truth for all was always a lie. It was always a myth. It was a, it was a it was a a myth of power of those who had the power to decide what was true or objective or was not unbiased. Um, an argument we have in American journalism still to this day. So yes, I think the responsibility comes down to each of us. And then what we should be doing in places like journalism is figuring out how to help people do that better. Rather than thinking that we're going to deliver one truth, we help folks try to understand how to do this and make the judgments themselves because they're going to anyway. But it goes back to Fama. It goes back to saying there are reputations that attach. And my favorite story from the Gutenberg parenthesis is that the first alleged call for censorship of print came in 1470, only about 15 years after, after the Bible, when a translator in Italy named Niccolo Perotti was much offended by a shoddy translation of Pliny. And he wrote to the Pope and he said, something must be done, sounds familiar, it's a wonderful letter, and um, you must appoint a censor, Your Holiness, who will, um, an erudite man who will uh, judge all that's to be printed before it comes off the press. Well, as I thought about that, I realized he wasn't seeking censorship at all. He was anticipating the creation of the institutions of editing and publishing, which would fairly well um, grapple with authority and credibility for half a millennium. Uh, but once again, those institutions are out of date. Uh, the, the other lesson from this story is that our first response to new voices being heard, the voices were always there, but they're now being heard, by those especially who held the power over speech before is to try to play whack-a-mole with them and tamp them down and say oh my god look at all this terrible stuff happening we must return to the mechanisms of control we had before good luck with that it ain't happening the control is gone so what do we do then well after we get past that first response which i was part of you know i, I raised money from places like facebook to give it away to researchers to deal with disinformation um i thought that was really important i still do but I think that we've got to shift our focus from the bad stuff to the good stuff. 
And that's the next thing that happens. When Harper's Magazine started in 1850, its mission was purely curatorial. It wasn't to create content. It was to say, wow, look at all this stuff we have out here now, thanks to high-speed presses and cheaper paper and so on. Somebody has to find the good stuff for you. And before they started assigning their own writers and having their own voice, they found the good voices out there. It's exactly what Ben Franklin wanted to do uh, in his magazine, which didn't succeed. Uh, but it was it was conversational in nature. It was curatorial in nature rather than necessarily creative. And we have this incredible um, wealth of voices and abundance of speech out there now. And it's overwhelming right now, but so is democracy. And so what I want to see, I want to see my students come out and create the Harpers of 1850 today that's, that finds the voices who were worth the time. I think... I th I'm not, do you think we can handle all of the voices of everybody? Like the, no. <laughs> it's it like, I, there's a, there's an, there was an argument made and it's been made a number of times. I talked about it with, um, Paolo Gerbado from, um, I think he's London school of economics. Um, uh, anyway, we, we talked a lot about how people just aren't designed to hear everyone's mad crazy opinions all the time like and 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 people just before the the barrier whereby people may not say things in conversation that they would just like type into a keyboard when there's no one there means that we get to exposed to like the most unfiltered opinions that we can't truly handle them as a society um, or as individuals, even on a level where it's like, oh my goodness, look at all these crazy ideas that people have. When people have always been a bit nuts, like I think, and everyone probably has at least one view that you would be like, you what? Like <laughs> um, on something. Um, mine, mine is that Brussels sprouts are terrible. But go ahead. With you there, that's not that offensive <laughs> to me. But um, the, do you think that there's going to be a difference here? in so before print we had we've talked about how our understanding of the world was maybe a little bit more based in the conversations and like the collective understanding perhaps of your town or your village like your your community of like couple hundred people right and that was the the and the, the truth was basically assigned through a series of like negotiations between everybody the, where where it sort of okay this is what everyone thinks broadly and it's it sort of the negotiation between everybody needing to interact and cooperate like lends itself to that happening do you think that's necessarily going to work the same when it's not a couple of hundred people anymore it's seven billion and some of them are very loud and very opinionated <laughs> Ever since print, we've had too much to read. We've had too much to absorb. We've had too much to to think about. Um, it and 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 in one sense, scale doesn't matter. It's just still too much. Um, it's harder though as a task to curate to find the good stuff to nurture that good stuff. That becomes harder in scale. But I also think we we have to change our notion of scale. Uh, that's one of the lessons from the Gutenberg parenthesis is that it wasn't until the, the mechanization and industrialization of print that we found the creation of mass media and the mass as a whole. And that our, our measurement of success was everybody. And that a message had to be good enough for everybody. Before the mechanization of print, 
the average circulation of a daily newspaper in the United States was 4,000. It was a good Substack newsletter, a good podcast, right? It was, it was, it was small. Um, and, um, I wonder whether we might return to that and kind of redefine the, our idea of local, not being a city or a town or geography, or not just being that, but also being the community of people who matter to us. Um, the lesson we've learned from Elon Musk the hard way is that is that putting much of our public discourse and news into one place that can be bought by a nihilistic nihil, uh, narcissist was a big mistake. And now people are confused because we have Blue Sky and Mastodon and Threads and all these other things. And I think it may be healthier that we go find our people where we can find them. And it's big enough. It's big enough to be a newspaper before steam powered presses. It's big enough to have a community. It's big enough to help each other and learn together and uh, organize to have a voice in a democracy. Um, so I, I think we got perverted by mass media, by this idea that we would all be one or, or minimum two maximum two with two parties in the United States. Um, um, so I think that I, I think we will have to adjust considerably our cognition of the world, uh, but we'll have no choice. Mm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm really interested ultimately to see how, how the, the Twitter X sort of experiment plays out because, um, that's a generous word. Uh, I think I think what's interesting about it though is is there's there's two parts. It's like first of all, I feel like a lot of those big social media platforms, Meta, um, Instagram, Facebook, obviously within Meta, uh, maybe Snapchat. You could put TikTok in there, although they're more of a disruptor. Say YouTube, probably more so. But a lot of them, had, it was the the market had almost become quite stagnant in a way. And there wasn't a whole lot of innovation or like development of things going on. And I think that that coupled with the $8 a month or whatever it is that people pay is interesting because I was one of the things that came across in my first book was I was concerned that advertisers had too much sway over the over the the content that was published on platforms. And, you know, like say it's a journalist wants to criticize like, AT&T for some like government contract corruption scandal and you know AT&T with big 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 ad spend and they go well you know maybe you could just like derank those a little bit and I think it's interesting to see where the experiment of people paying for it will go and I think it's it's like kicked a bit of life and there seems to be like more more innovation happening in the social media space like even if like X itself doesn't quite become the new thing um, as it evolves. Like, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how everyone else responds to it. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by, by that battle. Um, but one of the things I want to ask you since um, you're, you know, covering journalism uh, basically is that, uh, do you think the institutions of like the, the legacy media institutions are going to survive over the next decade or two because we we've talked about how um like the the institutions grew up after the invention of the printing press and i i'm curious as to whether you think there will be like 
do you think there's any survivors from from this old old guard of 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 sort of news giants like do you think they can adapt quick enough or do you think they maybe just fundamentally don't understand where they're going wrong professionally josh that's probably the thing i struggle with most how much do i pay attention to uh trying to fix the incumbents and that's a very egotistical statement to think that i can fix them but you know we try um or how much do i turn my attention to the disruptors the, the new people uh, i started a program also in entrepreneurial journalism and one in engagement journalism where i'm trying to get people to frankly burn it down and start over uh but also a program in executive for executives where i'm trying to get them to fix the incumbents and i'm not sure uh what happens you know in the united states uh Almost all our newspaper chains are now controlled by hedge funds that are not going to invest in media. I just saw a report today about the concentration of media in the UK, and it's, I think, you know, more than 80% in three hands, and they're not very nice hands. Um, uh, and so what do we do? Um, I, I, I don't know, frankly, my most honest answer. I think that newspapers as they stood newspapers in print will become unsustainable they're becoming unsustainable and that's that's a waste of ego to keep printing them in great measure uh i love the guardian dearly it's its circulation is now down to what something like 160,000 you know why bother because there's revenue there i get it but i t i've long told newspapers they have to plan for the day when print is unsustainable and if they're not a digital enterprise by then they're dead so we'll and, and but i think we have to fundamentally change journalism my engagement journalism program that I started with my colleague, Carrie Brown, is all about starting not with our stories and our narrative and our view of the world as journalists, but to start by listening to and observing communities. Magazines. My next book, uh, called Magazine, which is a small little series also out of Bloomsbury, um, to my surprise, turned into an elegy for the forum. I started a magazine in the U.S. called Entertainment Weekly, which is now out of print. Still supposedly alive online, but, you know. Um, and as I looked, as I tracked the arc of the history of magazines, there were periods. There, there was that conversational and curatorial period of Harper's. There was uh, the industrial corporate period of Loose and Time magazine. Uh, there was the kind of glossy period of Condé Nast. And I think magazines lost a beat by not seeing themselves first and foremost as communities instead of content factories. And so they could have started Facebook. They could have started AOL, and they didn't. So I think they may lose. They may, and, and certainly they're going to go out of print. Um, but I think that notion, that culture of the magazine of finding the best and nurturing the best, should live on in the internet. We need it to live on in the internet. But we need people who are imaginative enough to rethink the institution around that, or it'll be replaced. TV, a linear TV, dying fast before us. Radio in the U.S. has been dead far sooner than the UK because you have nice BBC radio and we have crappy uh, commercial companies. Um, uh, streaming was going to replace it all, but streaming is not a great business right now. Uh, YouTube and so on. So I think those institutions are going to change radically. Now, I, again, find great hope in the fact that there are communities that and, and, and people and creators who have the mechanism to now share with the world that was impossible before. They couldn't make it through the gauntlet of big old media. And is there crap? Of course there's crap. There's tons of crap. It's always been crap. Um, but in that uh, dross, there is silver to be found. 
Uh, I'm going to mention Taylor Lorenz's book uh, again, which is um, extremely, well, what the hell is this? Extremely online, uh, which I recommend very much. And at the beginning, it's all the things I loved about the internet. It's blogs and the early YouTubers. And, and I'm a, I've been a blogger since 2001. And, 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 I, and I love all that culture. And then along come all the young people doing amazing things as creators in Instagram and YouTube and now TikTok and so on. And I love the culture and the create. I love the fact that a culture creates itself. It isn't imposed by Anna Winfrey at Vogue, right? And in fashion and in music, the culture now has the chance to be itself. Okay, that's the good news. The bad news is that Taylor's book in the end turns into a business book primarily about how these creators, uh, as they're now called, um, make money. And they make money because of advertising and they make money by being as big as possible and so they are not creating the art for themselves. They're creating it to get as much attention from the audience as possible, the attention economy, mass media started, and from the advertiser. Um, and so one wonders whether uh, everyone becomes media, but being media is fundamentally corrupting. And that when we, we are motivated by earning a living, and hey, you and I have to earn a living doing things like this, and hallelujah, and we're motivated by trying to get as much attention as possible. And I can you know, do something crazy now that you can put on social media that I did so you can get more audience. Um, what does that do to us and our conversation and our expression and our creativity and our worldview? Uh, I, I think we'll figure it out. I think we'll find ways uh, to, get, to get past that control of, by the way, it's not control of technology. It's not control of technology companies. It's control of the business model and who has the money? Now, some would say, well, it's capitalism is the root of all evil and just get rid of capitalism. That ain't happening. Good luck with that. So how do we imagine something? So in the last few days, especially after reading Taylor's book, I'm thinking, I mentioned this earlier, I would love someone to come along and create that Harper's of 1850 that says there's a lot of good shit out there. And my job is to help find it for you. And, um, and have a dozen and a hundred of those come up. So we get to choose between and among those curators and those algorithms and those recommendation systems. Um, we start concentrating on the good stuff, not the bad stuff. That's my hope, but I don't see it sprouting up from the ground yet. Well, as I copiously take notes about my next business venture here. Um, <laughs> well, please, please indeed. Um, do you think it's possible for so like, do you think that's actually like a viable business model in the in the in the digital environment? I, I think if we rescale, it can be. If you're going to be dependent upon advertising purely, then uh, in the way it exists now in programmatic advertising, um, no, because programmatic doesn't care about the environment. It doesn't care about the quality of what it's next to. It cares about the data about the consumer and their intention, and it can go anywhere. It is, it is quite promiscuous. Um, so editorial environment is completely devalued now. And editorial voice and brand and so on. Uh, subscriptions. Well, every, all God's children think they, they deserve subscription money. And uh, it ain't happening. There's not enough to go around. So that's a problem. Membership. I'm very enthralled with the membership model. Because it means more than just having access to content. It means sharing something together, a, a movement, an action, taste, interest, whatever, and the desire to support that. But still, there's a scarcity. There's only so much to go around, only so much we're going to contribute to. 
So I think this is where scale comes back into it. If you're forced to have millions of people because you've got to be the hottest thing on TikTok to get the brand deal, to make the money, we know what that's going to produce. Uh, some interesting, fun things, but some crap too. Whereas if we if we find the smart sponsor who says, I want to be, I really do want to be next to quality. And big enough is okay. And no, you're not going to make millions from me, but can you make enough um, to buy your microphone? Maybe, maybe. Uh, can you make enough from contributors and, and 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 members out there to do that? Is what's the scale at which that works? That's what I'm starting to, to uh, trying to think through now. Is new definitions of scale. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's in a way. I think it's the it's it's a constant like swing in in so many industries, right? Between between scale and then. Um, like fractionalization scale and then fractionalization like you can look yes. at it um in like terms of say governments and empires through the through history like it goes from like big empires to like thing collapses everything becomes very balkanized and then the same thing happens again and it like falls apart and like for like uh, you could look at brexit as as like a, an expression of of like the beginning of of this like refracturing of of, yes. of nations and like the amount of people calling for like the United States to split and some parts to secede and um, seems to like speak to this idea that like perhaps perhaps this is like a fundamental thing that happens in almost everything in life is that like it's something subsumes a lot of stuff and then it dies and then there's like the the pieces left to pick up. Um, do you think do you think the membership model in in the sense of journalism is is a way for for that fractionalized sort of more, more balkanized media landscape to work because the the biggest criticism i see of this being a way forward is that once you have people in a community right say paying for for you to to produce the content or curate the content or like you know say say i was like okay i'm gonna make this channel with uh memberships and then you know you can all chat and contribute and everything that you get you get sort of pigeonholed into creating things for the small finite audience that you've managed to like clump together and do you get worried of of truly like expressing yourself in a way you might have been more free to do if you know you weren't reliant on like because say 10 percent of your subs like go that's 10 percent your income and say that's not that many people to, that it takes it that say you got like because you're relying on say 500 people paying paying ten dollars or ten pounds a month um to run your operation and then 10 percent of that goes like that's a huge amount like how, how do you think people we we counter that that like opposing force to to the this desire to have truth and and you know seek out what is real and and the best i i think you have to trade stay true to something and people either accept that and value that or don't. And it's been ever thus. In newspapers, you know, I, I teach students about what I call the myth of mass media, which is all readers see all ads, so we charge all advertisers for all readers. Thus, you never wanted to lose a reader because you're losing their chance to sell their eyeballs to every single advertiser. Whether or not they read the sports section or the food section, you don't care. The advertiser didn't know. You sold every reader to every advertiser. 
the Star Ledger in New Jersey, uh, part of related to Condé Nast, where I used to work, uh, one year decided to finally stop printing stock prices in print because it was expensive. It was a couple pages of, of paper and ink and and syndication fees, and so they got rid of them. And they were afraid to death of how many subscribers they would lose because of the myth of mass media. Well, they saved a million dollars by getting rid of the stock tables. They lost fewer than 10 subscribers, which is to say that they were spending $100,000 a year to hold on to those people who were soon to die anyway. If you become too, uh, and this is something my friend Jay Rosen at NYU writes about with the New York Times, when you become dependent upon your readers, your subscribers, on the one hand, that's wonderful, but on the other hand, you start to project onto them your fears of losing them. you got to stay true to who you are. You don't have much choice but to. Because your readers will suss out when you don't as well. Readers, viewers, whatever we call them now. Yeah, yeah, well. Consumers of content. Um, anyway, Jeff, it's been um, an absolute pleasure. Uh, I really, really want to thank you for your time. Fascinating discussion. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, everybody go buy uh, the Gutenberg Parenthesis. Highly recommended. Um, it's a real slow read. You really want to sit and like take in what's going on on the page. Um, but fascinating, fascinating book. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's really enjoyed this conversation. And I was just thinking, you know, when I talk about the return to conversational media and conversational culture, this is it, right? Two people get together and talk about ideas and talk about stuff. And it's really enjoyable. And we're not a three, a 30 second sound bite. And we're not one paragraph in something and not everybody's going to watch this though. People, I wish they would and I'll, I'll go all over social media and tell them to, but it's just enjoyable. So thank you. No problem. Um, yeah. Look forward to having you back. Hey everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.